This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On September 11th, 2001, two planes flew into New York's Twin Towers and sent them crumbling to the ground, killing thousands. The United States was sent into a state of terror and panic after the attack, and a likely scapegoat was soon found. Osama bin Laden, who led a network of terrorists hell-bent on destroying the American way of life. Finding bin Laden became the number one priority for the Bush administration and led to invasions of both Afghanistan and Iraq. But the war in Iraq turned out to be less fruitful than the government hoped. Some Americans started to believe the war was really about protecting the country's oil interests. Conspiracy theories abounded, the most prominent being that 9-11 was organized by the U.S. government to justify its invasion of the Middle East. This theory faced, and still faces, many criticisms, the loudest of which is that the U.S. government would never kill its own citizens for political gain. But a document presented to the White House in 1962 and made public in November 1997 shows that this isn't necessarily true. Operation Northwoods proposed several ways to justify an American invasion of Cuba, including staging attacks on U.S. soil and incurring deaths of innocent American civilians. The operation was never put into effect, at least not in the 60s. But if they considered it once, could they have considered it 
a second time. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the ParCast Network show where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked us how to help support the show, and if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. This is our second episode covering the events surrounding Operation Northwoods. Last week, we discussed the official history of the U.S. relationship with Cuba, from Castro's rise to power to the Cuban Missile Crisis. This week, we'll explore some conspiracy theories surrounding those tumultuous years. Conspiracy theory number one. Top military and CIA officials deliberately sabotaged the Bay of Pigs invasion to embarrass President Kennedy and force him to commit more fully to overthrowing Castro. Conspiracy theory number two. John F. Kennedy was assassinated in part because he refused to carry out Operation Northwoods, and the same officials who advocated for Northwoods attempted to use JFK's death as justification for an invasion of Cuba. And conspiracy theory number three. Operation Northwoods is proof that the U.S. government is willing to conspire against its own citizens and that it did, indeed, carry out a similar operation years later on September 11, 2001. When President John F. Kennedy was sworn in on January 20, 1961, tensions with Cuba were reaching an all-time high, and the U.S. government was bent on stopping Castro in his tracks. Eisenhower's outgoing administration had already begun working on a plan to incite rebellion in Cuba and overthrow Castro's regime, the operation that would later become the Bay of Pigs. But Kennedy was adamant that all involvement from the United States be kept a secret. The invasion was designed to appear organic, an uprising from dissatisfied Cuban exiles and soldiers. Top CIA leaders didn't feel the same way as Kennedy, specifically the CIA director, Alan Dulles, and Richard Bissell, the deputy director of plans. They believed that any plan to overthrow Castro would have to include a military invasion to guarantee success. Postmortem analyses of the Bay of Pigs invasion indicate that this divide is what led to the disastrous failure. But conspiracy theory number one suggests that the invasion was always meant to fail, and that the CIA had specifically planned to do so in order to embarrass Kennedy in the global political arena. Let's dive in and see what really happened. When Kennedy took over the Bay of Pigs operation in January of 1961, the invasion was already mostly planned out, but with a few key differences from how it was eventually carried out. For one thing, 
The group of Cuban exiles, known as Brigade 2506, was originally meant to land near Trinidad, a town with known anti-Castro sentiments, easy port access, and nearby mountains that could provide cover and shelter. Also, while the landing party itself would consist of Cuban exiles, the American government planned to provide them with plenty of air and naval support, using unmarked equipment to ensure the success of the operation. But Kennedy was hesitant about the plan from the very beginning. He was acutely aware that any attempts on the Castro regime by the American government would result in backlash from the rest of the world, as well as a rise in anti-American sentiments in Cuba. Kennedy pushed for more moderate options that didn't include an all-out invasion. Others in the administration also had concerns. Thomas Mann, the Assistant Secretary for Inter-American Affairs, wrote a memo in February of 1961 where he mentioned that a Cuban uprising, which the CIA was depending on in order for its invasion to work, was unlikely to happen. Mann wrote, quote, It therefore appears possible, even probable, that we would be faced with a. Abandoning the brigade to its fate, which would cost us dearly in prestige and respect, or b. Attempting execution of the plan to move the brigade into the mountains as guerrillas, which would pose a prolonged problem of airdrops or supplies, or c. Overt U.S. military intervention. In other words, if they went ahead with the invasion, they would eventually either have to send overt military aid and look like belligerent war hawks, or abandon the exiles entirely and look like a bunch of untrustworthy jerks. Either way, it would be a public relations disaster. Mann advocated that the government drop the invasion entirely, but the CIA leaders in charge of the operation believed this plan was their last chance to overthrow Castro without a full-scale military operation. Richard Bissell also argued that if the invasion didn't move forward as planned, the exiles who had been training and preparing for the mission would be angry and disillusioned giving them an excellent motive to go to the press and talk all about the aborted mission. It's interesting to note that Kennedy's Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as his top CIA operatives, were all in favor of an invasion, despite the president's hesitancy. Perhaps out of trust for his advisor's opinions, Kennedy didn't cancel the operation. Instead, he asked his staff to amend the plans and make the invasion smaller so that U.S. involvement wasn't immediately obvious. On the president's orders, the CIA changed the target destination from Trinidad to the Bay of Pigs. The town was smaller, more remote. The hope was that a landing party on its shores wouldn't be noticed as quickly as at the larger Trinidad. This ended up being a mistake. The Bay of Pigs offered none of the geographical or political advantages that Trinidad had. It was a small fishing town with no man-made or natural shelters, and the town itself was 80 miles from the only mountains that could provide the exiles with cover. Most importantly, however, the Bay of Pigs happened to be a favorite fishing spot of Fidel Castro's, meaning that he knew the town intimately. When the attack was made known, Castro knew exactly how to root out the invaders. Any intelligence agency worth their salt is aware of the typical whereabouts of an enemy country's dictator. So most likely, the CIA knew Castro was familiar with the Bay of Pigs and suggested it anyway. 
Not only did they offer up a bad target for invasion, they may have intentionally offered the worst target for invasion, all the while saying it was to reassure the president. As the date of the invasion grew closer, Kennedy was still worried. He consistently asked that less equipment and fewer resources be devoted to the project in order to further conceal U.S. involvement. This caused some members of Kennedy's administration to lose faith in the project. On April 5, 1961, Special Assistant Arthur Schlesinger told the president he believed the invading force wouldn't be strong enough to topple Castro's administration and that the invasion would drag on until the United States was pressured to send in military support. The CIA was starting to worry as well. Just a couple days later, two of the CIA sub-commanders working under Richard Bissell, Jacob Esterline and Jack Hawkins, asked to resign. They believed the changes the White House ordered made the operation far less likely to succeed. But Bissell convinced them both to stay on. He still believed the mission would be a triumph, and in the days before the attack, he rated its potential success rate as a two out of three. On April 14, 1961, Kennedy approved an airstrike that was meant to set out the next day to destroy Cuban military aircraft so that they couldn't attack the landing party. The original plan was for 16 planes to fly out with enough firepower to take out all of Cuba's planes. But Kennedy, believing that this would attract too much attention, reduced the number down to eight. Richard Bissell passed along the command. This was an interesting move on his part. Bissell and the CIA operatives working under him all knew fully well that in order for the plan to be carried out successfully, 16 planes were needed. Eight wouldn't get the job done. But he didn't make this information known to the president. Perhaps he felt it wasn't his job to contradict the commander-in-chief's orders. Well, maybe, but some conspiracy theorists use this as proof that the Bay of Pigs invasion was designed to fail. Bissell had been working on this plan for years, and he knew exactly what needed to happen in order for this invasion to work. Unless, of course, it was never supposed to work. Or it's possible that with all the information available to him, he believed eight planes could still execute the mission and cripple Cuba's military response. Regardless of his reasoning, Bissell passed along the command. On April 15, 1961, eight planes flew over Cuba, tasked with destroying all of the country's military aircraft. Instead, they only took out a portion of the planes, and a good portion of the ones they hit had been decommissioned already. Even worse, U.S. involvement was discovered almost immediately after the attack, thanks to an emergency U.N. meeting where the U.S. ambassador, who had no idea about the secret operation, accidentally presented photo evidence that proved the attacking planes were American. Despite this discovery, Kennedy proceeded with the invasion, but with even more caution. He canceled the airstrikes that were meant to assist the landing party, leaving the brigade with very little support. This was another red flag for the CIA. But again, despite their knowledge that the airstrikes were necessary for the success of the mission, they followed Kennedy's orders as morning dawned on April 17, 1961. What happened next is history. The Bay of Pigs was a grave military failure 
that embarrassed the Kennedy administration and led to escalated tensions between Cuba and the United States. It also led to strife between Kennedy and the CIA operatives that planned the mission. Alan Dulles and Richard Bissell were asked to hand in their resignations, and Kennedy started to distrust the information that he received from the agency. Looking back, it was clear that the invasion plan had many errors. The idea that 1,500 invaders could land undetected on Cuban soil, raise a rebellion, and overthrow a dictatorship seems completely outlandish. But hindsight is always 2020. The question is, was the probable failure as obvious to the CIA at the time as it is to us now? Experienced CIA operatives spent years designing the plan, which is why some conspiracy theorists believe it's more likely that it was never meant to work in the first place. Instead, the final plan was designed with just enough flaws to embarrass Kennedy. The CIA hoped that by doing so, they would force Kennedy to refocus his efforts on overthrowing Castro by any means necessary. But there is another explanation for what happened. After the invasion failed, Richard Bissell and the CIA operatives overseeing the invasion made a startling admission. They believed that despite Kennedy's assurances to the contrary, the White House would agree to send military forces to Cuba once it was clear that the planned invasion was failing. So that seals the deal. The CIA knew the mission would fail, and they went ahead with it anyway. But this doesn't mean that Bissell didn't intend to sabotage the mission. It sounds like he still hoped the Bay of Pigs invasion could be a success. He just knew it might require military forces Kennedy hadn't yet agreed to. Still, the fact that CIA operatives knew the plan was bound to fail and didn't make any moves to stop it raises some suspicions. At the very least, I have to guess they were harboring some resentment against Kennedy for his lack of commitment to the mission, and they went along with his ill-advised orders out of spite or bitterness. Overall, I'd rate this theory a 7 out of 10. While the CIA may have known the mission was doomed to fail, it remains to be seen whether it was deliberately sabotaged or if the CIA operatives were simply powerless to protest against the president's orders. It seems just as likely that the invasion fell apart on accident because Kennedy and the CIA weren't able to get on the same page about their goals. I'll give it a 9 out of 10 for one reason. Our conspiracy theory states that the CIA sabotaged the mission to force Kennedy into a more aggressive military invasion. Whether the disaster was planned or coincidental, the CIA was banking on the fact that if or when the invasion failed, Kennedy would agree to send in military reinforcements. You have a point. Even though the CIA knew about the invasion's diminishing chances of success, they were still eager to succeed in Cuba. It seems plausible that they truly believed the president's qualms about sending in more troops would be lifted once the invasion was underway. Unfortunately, their calculations were incorrect. The Bay of Pigs failure didn't push Kennedy to send troops into Cuba. In fact, it only weakened Kennedy's already tense relationship with the CIA and pushed both sides toward more drastic measures. Coming up next, we'll discuss the military strategies born after the Bay of Pigs and whether or not they were responsible 
for President Kennedy's assassination. Now, back to the story. After the Bay of Pigs invasion failed in 1961, President John F. Kennedy, along with his brother Robert, redoubled their efforts to overthrow Fidel Castro. They tasked the CIA with this mission, which was named Operation Mongoose. But after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, the CIA and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were concerned that Kennedy's approach wasn't drastic enough. The world began to see Kennedy as weak and inexperienced, and the CIA believed that in order to overthrow Castro once and for all, the U.S. military would have to take action. To that end, they created Operation Northwoods. Its contents were so divisive and secretive that it spawned several conspiracy theories, including the second theory we'll be discussing today, that Kennedy's refusal to implement Operation Northwoods led to his assassination. As we discussed last week, Operation Northwoods was a proposal of possible ways to justify an American military operation in Cuba. The plans laid out were drastic. They involved faking attacks on Guantanamo Bay, starting a terror campaign in Florida, and even taking the lives of American citizens to inspire outrage. The proposal referenced Remember the Maine, a rallying war cry that united the American public after the tragedy of the USS Maine. For listeners who aren't intimately familiar with the events leading up to the Spanish-American War, the USS Maine was an American battleship that was sent to provide aid to Cuba in 1898, when Cuba was still owned by Spain. The United States strongly supported Cuban independence, largely because of the number of American-owned properties and companies on the island. And the USS Maine was anchored off the Cuban shore to provide support if necessary. Unfortunately, a mysterious explosion pierced the ship's hull, taking the whole ship and all 260 crew members down with it. It was never definitively proven whether Spain was behind the explosion, but the U.S. government used it to rally support for the Spanish-American War regardless, a tactic they hoped to replicate with false flag attacks during Operation Northwoods. The proposal was rejected outright by Kennedy in April of 1962, leading to even greater tension between the president and the CIA. The Operation Northwoods document was immediately classified and wasn't released to the public until 35 years later. In 1997, the Operation Northwoods proposal was released, alongside more than 1,000 classified documents related to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The document's place in the collection raised the eyebrows of some conspiracy theorists. This doesn't mean that the Operation Northwoods document was related to the assassination. The John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Review Board released all the classified military documents from 1962 to 1964, which just happened to include Operation Northwoods. However, it does fuel suspicions that Kennedy's assassination may have been in part due to his outright dismissal of this proposal. There are two parts to this theory. The first states that the CIA played a part in Kennedy's assassination because they believed that he wasn't capable of dealing with Castro. 
The second is that the CIA used Kennedy's death as an extension of Operation Northwoods, blaming Cuba for the assassination as an excuse to go to war. Let's start with part one. The JFK assassination has spurred countless conspiracy theories, some of which we covered in our previous episode on Kennedy's assassination. For our purposes today, we'll focus on the details that pertain to possible CIA involvement. We already know the official story. John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22, 1963, by Lee Harvey Oswald, a known communist. Oswald was taken into custody the next day, and he himself was killed by nightclub owner Jack Ruby while in police custody on November 24th. Ruby claimed that he killed Oswald in retaliation for Kennedy's death, but many theorists found the timing suspicious. Oswald was dead before anyone could question him about the assassination or connect him to any other people who might have been aware of the plot. Because of this, conspiracy theorists have deduced that Oswald's death was a cover-up and that there were larger forces at play. This is especially compelling considering Oswald's motive, or lack thereof. Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, a former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy and Associate Editor of the Wall Street Journal, believed that Oswald was hired by the CIA in a joint conspiracy between their organization, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Secret Service. Roberts' theory stems from the fact that Kennedy butted heads with these other groups during the Bay of Pigs operation and refused to allow a stronger military presence in Cuba. Then, when the CIA presented a plan to take Castro out once and for all, Operation Northwoods, Kennedy rejected the project immediately. According to Roberts, the final nail in the coffin came in June of 1963 when Kennedy gave a commencement speech at American University that touched on a hope for world peace. He even asked the graduating students to re-examine their attitude towards the Soviet Union. It appeared his already lukewarm stance on communism was weakening. This new, friendly position towards the Soviet Union was drastically different from how Kennedy had governed in the previous two years. Drastic enough that it could even warrant the necessity of killing the president in the interest of national security. At the time, the CIA and the American government in general was still very concerned about the threat of communism. Some government operatives already believed that Kennedy's lack of decisive action was what led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. This commencement speech would have only contributed to the CIA's long-standing view on Kennedy, that he couldn't be relied upon to make difficult choices when it came down to it. There may have been another compelling incentive for killing Kennedy. Operation Northwoods outlined several ways to incite national outrage towards Cuba and inspire a full-scale military invasion, some of which included American casualties. The same operatives who came up with Northwoods may have been inspired to use Kennedy's death in the same manner. This actually did end up happening. In the aftermath of Kennedy's assassination, many people, including members of the CIA, believed that Fidel Castro was behind Kennedy's death. 
Lee Harvey Oswald was a known communist sympathizer and, according to some sources, had hoped Kennedy's assassination would endear him to the Castro regime. In addition, Oswald had paid a visit to both the Soviet and Cuban embassies in Mexico City just a few months before JFK's assassination. It's possible that the CIA chose Oswald as their patsy because of the clear connection he had to Cuba. The connections between Oswald and Cuba didn't escape the notice of the U.S. intelligence community. On the evening of the assassination, FBI Director Hoover allegedly told Robert Kennedy that Oswald had made several trips to Cuba, a fact that couldn't be corroborated by the record. That same day, U.S. Army intelligence reported false information that Oswald had defected to Cuba in 1959. Robert Kennedy himself called a Cuban exile, Harry Ruiz Williams, and told him, quote, one of your boys did this. For their part, the CIA also uncovered a number of links that connected Oswald to Cuba, links that, for whatever reason, the agency hadn't bothered to investigate prior to the assassination. We need to remember that in 1963, technology was not what it is today. It would have been prohibitively difficult and time-consuming for government agencies to keep tabs on everyone who traveled to Cuba. But in the days following Kennedy's assassination, all the government's resources and manpower went into investigating Oswald and his ties to Cuba. A committee called the Warren Commission was drawn up to determine what happened during and leading up to the shooting. Among its members was Alan Dulles, the disgraced former director of the CIA who was fired after the Bay of Pigs fiasco. This led to immediate speculation that the CIA was attempting to use the assassination to spark a war with Cuba. However, this plan was presumed to hinge on finding Oswald already dead, allowing the government to frame him using the information about his ties to Cuba. Unfortunately for them, their patsy was found alive, and he spent 48 hours denying that he had killed anyone. Though conveniently, before Oswald got a chance to be thoroughly questioned, he was suddenly shot to death by Jack Ruby on November 24th, just two days after being arrested. In the end, it probably wouldn't have mattered if Oswald was alive or dead. His links to Cuba were too tenuous to suggest any sort of international conspiracy, and the Warren Commission ended up finding that Oswald acted alone. The war with Cuba never materialized. Overall, this theory makes logical sense and lines up with historical events enough that it feels believable. It's plausible that the CIA felt threatened by Kennedy and that his rejection of Northwoods was enough to send them running. But there's less tangible evidence that the CIA hoped to use Kennedy's assassination to start a war with Cuba. We rate this theory a four out of 10. Maybe the CIA wasn't behind the JFK assassination, but they might have been behind another American tragedy that's inspired conspiracy theories of its own. Up next, we'll discuss how a top-secret government project designed in 1962 connects to a terrorist attack in 2001. Now back to the story. September 11th, 2001, started out like any normal day. 
But the morning took a turn for the unexpected when two planes hit the World Trade Center, killing thousands and sending New York City into a state of panic. Details after the attack were scattered, but by the end of the day, the entire country knew about Al-Qaeda, the terrorist group presumed to be responsible for the hijackings. The resulting fury and outrage fueled the American invasions in both Afghanistan and Iraq. But the outrage flagged when it was revealed that the so-called weapons of mass destruction weren't actually present in Iraq. Instead, some politicians and journalists started believing that the invasion was a pretext, orchestrated by the U.S. government. Many people didn't buy this conclusion, and for good reason. It's hard to believe that a government is capable of executing its own citizens and faking a hostile attack just to secure public opinion. But one document from 1962, made public in 1998, proves not only that it's possible, but that our own government had once considered doing this exact same thing. Now this brings us to conspiracy theory number three. A false flag mission modeled on Operation Northwoods was carried out on September 11, 2001, to justify an invasion of the Middle East and protect American oil interests. Much like the JFK assassination, the conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11 are a massive topic that would require several episodes to fully dissect. Today, we're going to be focusing in on only one aspect, the similarities between 9-11 and the proposed Operation Northwoods. As a bit of background, there are a number of details that lead conspiracy theorists to believe the attacks on the Twin Towers were more complicated than the official story suggests. The towers collapsed extremely quickly, almost at a freefall rate. In videos of the attack, puffs of smoke can be seen coming from the sides of the building before it collapses. Some people believe this smoke came from bombs hidden within the building that were detonated once the planes hit. Theorists also point to flashes of light seconds before the planes hit the buildings, believing these to be missiles. Scientists examining the wreckage have suggested that a combination of the collision and the jet fuel led to an explosion that caused the buildings to come crumbling down. As for the puffs of smoke and flashes of light, they could be a product of the collision or even something to do with the cameras the videos came from. Top scientists from the University of Edinburgh have weighed in on the matter, and their conclusion was that a typical Boeing 767 couldn't have caused the chain reaction that it did within the Twin Towers without some form of accelerant. As for the videos, every single camera that captured the event witnessed the same puffs of smoke and flashes of light. Let's let the matter rest there. We've proven the point. There's some reasonable suspicion that the attacks may have included more than just a plane collision. Now let's move on to the more relevant question. Whatever happened, was the U.S. government involved? To answer that, let's take a look at the government's response when it became apparent that the flights were hijacked. Robin Horton, a former air traffic controller, believes that the government must have had something to do with the attacks. Well, there's no other way the planes could have made it all the way to the Twin Towers without being stopped. 
According to Horton, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, monitors the skies 24-7 with extremely sophisticated radar. Every single aircraft in the country is tracked from takeoff to landing. If a plane goes missing or deviates from its flight plan, NORAD knows about it immediately and sets about fixing the problem. NORAD, by the way, is supervised by the Pentagon. According to reports from the morning of September 11th, the news that something had gone wrong with the hijacked planes started to spread as early as 8.15 a.m., almost a full half hour before the first plane hit the North Tower and close to an hour before the South Tower was hit. This gave the U.S. military plenty of time to respond and avert the disaster before it continued to get worse. But the planes met no resistance in the sky. After the attack, official reports showed that an astonishing lack of communication prevented the military from reacting in a timely manner, even though NORAD, which was tracking the flights, reports directly to the Pentagon. Not only was the military response unusually sluggish, even the president and the Secret Service were slow to respond. On the morning of September 11th, President Bush was reading to a classroom of children at a school in Florida. He hadn't yet entered the classroom when his chief of staff, Andrew Card, informed him that a plane had hit the first tower. At the time, no one knew what was happening, and President Bush decided to continue with his reading as planned. Some people in his administration believed that the plane collision could have been an accident, so the isolated incident wasn't enough to establish panic. But when the second plane hit, there was more of a consensus. Card whispered into Bush's ear minutes after he started reading, quote, a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack, end quote. Curiously, however, Bush decided to stay in the classroom for an additional 10 minutes. Commenting on the incident in later years, he noted that he didn't want to scare the children. But conspiracy theorists have laid down other opinions, namely that Bush knew about the attack. White House protocol should have kicked in at that point. Standard procedure dictates that the president, as well as top leadership in the White House, be taken to a secure location in the event of a terrorist attack. The lack of immediate action was especially reckless, considering that the terrorists might have known Bush's whereabouts as well. But at the time, no one was sure of anything that was going on. It's fully possible that Bush and his administration simply weren't aware of the magnitude of the attack. Or perhaps they were positive that no harm would come to them at that school in Florida because they knew exactly where the hijacked planes were going to crash. According to the theory, the 9-11 attacks, like Operation Northwoods in the 60s, were staged by the government for ulterior motives. This theory hinges on an important detail, how badly the U.S. government wanted to use military force in the Middle East. Let's take a look at the political climate of the early 2000s and a neoconservative think tank called Project for the New American Century, or PNAC. PNAC was established in 1997 to reestablish American dominance throughout the world after the end of the Cold War. The think tank had several goals, 
including increasing the country's military budget, toppling governments whose interests didn't align with America's, such as North Korea and Iran, developing new, safer nuclear weapons, and so on. PNAC reported that while the world was currently at peace, the global order must have a secure foundation on unquestioned U.S. military preeminence. The report also noted that absent a catastrophic event, such as Pearl Harbor, the transformation was likely to be a long one. It's interesting to note that most of the funding for this think tank reportedly came from the energy and arms industries. In short, industries that would benefit the most from a heavily armed, military-dominant United States. These same industries were also the primary funders of George W. Bush's presidential campaign, and many of the key members of the think tank, including future Vice President Dick Cheney, Jeb Bush, and other top conservative politicians in Washington, went on to assume positions of power in Bush's administration. These politicians had been advocating for a war with Iraq long before Bush's election. In 1998, Many of the founding members of PNAC wrote a letter to President Clinton urging him to prioritize the removal of Saddam Hussein's regime from power. While this letter proved unsuccessful, the same PNAC members found their opportunity in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. Within days of the attack, they were urging President Bush to attack Iraq, despite the fact that there was no evidence to tie Iraq to the attacks. The similarities to Operation Northwoods are clear enough, but the lack of a concrete connection between 9-11 and Iraq actually leads me to believe the attacks weren't staged to bolster support for war. If the government had planned the whole thing, wouldn't they have taken a little more care to tie the attacks to the country they wanted to invade? There was so much fear and confusion after 9-11, it didn't end up mattering how flimsy the evidence was. It took a couple years for the invasion to commence, but in 2003, the United States invaded Iraq with the goal of overthrowing Saddam Hussein's regime. The political climate surrounding 9-11 did closely resemble the days after the Cuban Missile Crisis. A country where U.S. companies hold major assets falls into the hands of a hostile government. Top political leaders want to invade, but they need a pretext. In the 60s, the CIA's answer was Operation Northwoods. In 2001, there may have been a similar proposal. Of course, it's more likely the Bush administration had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. But after the tragedy occurred, they sensed an opportunity to use it as justification for their desired war in Iraq. After all, Even Operation Northwoods did its best to limit American casualties to the point of faking a plane attack using a drone. Killing thousands of civilians and even attacking the Pentagon seems like a step too far. But Operation Northwoods did propose taking U.S. lives and even listing casualties in newspapers in order to spark outrage. With that document in hand, we can't completely dismiss the theory. Overall, this theory, while somewhat outlandish, does have some compelling evidence, and the comparison to Operation Northwoods is striking. 
If we're setting aside the question of whether 9-11 was staged, it seems nearly undeniable that the Bush administration did use the attacks as a pretext for an invasion they'd been desiring for a long time. But the evidence that the government deliberately planned the attacks as a false flag operation is dubious. I'd give this theory a 6 out of 10. And I'll give it a 3 out of 10. While I acknowledge that some of the official details don't line up, I can't quite believe the U.S. government would actually harm its own citizens. We don't have the time today to comb through all the evidence regarding 9-11, but there are enough unanswered questions to make us reconsider the theory that it might have been an Operation Northwoods-like covert mission. Government responses to difficult political scenarios are a constant source of speculation and conspiracy theories. And it's no wonder that the 1960s led to so many theories. In just three short years, the government participated in a secret American-led invasion of Cuba, came up with a highly controversial proposal to stage false flag attacks within the United States, and witnessed a presidential assassination that rocked the country to its very core. The theories we discuss today are all pretty plausible. I'm willing to accept conspiracy theory number one, that the CIA allowed the Bay of Pigs invasion to fail to force Kennedy's hand regarding military intervention. I'll agree. There's some very strong support for that theory. Conspiracy theories two and three make sense, but there isn't quite enough evidence to convince me. But there isn't enough counter evidence to convince me they're definitely not true either. It took over three decades for the Operation Northwoods document to be declassified. There may be more information that hasn't been revealed to the public, and perhaps never will be. Meanwhile, we'll keep our eyes open for more conspiracies, coincidences, and complicated stories. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Liz Dorovitsen and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>